Hi, I'm Larry Gifford, and I have Parkinson's disease. And I'm Rebecca Gifford, Larry's partner in Parkinson's and in life. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, the eighth and final episode of the series all about deep brain stimulation, DBS. And if you haven't caught the first seven episodes covering our DBS experience, we recommend starting at the beginning. Uh, In the beginning, in the beginning. It really offers a lot of information about our process and our experiences, especially your experience. But it also gives really good information about what we took into consideration as we considered whether you should go forward with DBS surgery. So we listened to a lot of people and offered a good portion of their stories. Pros and cons, not everybody has a great experience. There are things to consider, there are risks. Um, We listened to the surgical team and we included a portion of the advice that they gave us as well. And really gave an, kind of an inside look to our conversations as we talked about this, thought about this, considered what were we fearful of? How did we handle the day of? What was your experience like during the surgery? Because in, the, in British Columbia, what they do is keep you awake for a good portion of it. So what was that like? And all of the, the things that you need to be prepared for. So for anybody considering DBS, curious about DBS, family members, care partners, people with Parkinson's. This is a great series to inform yourself and then kind of see it through our eyes as we made those decisions as you would need to. Yeah, it's really a comprehensive look at DBS. And so we hope that uh, you've enjoyed it. And this, this is the final episode of it. So we will be giving an update. So what recently happened to you, I wonder, Larry? Well, I was turned into a half man, half machine. <laughs> uh, the the honeymoon period lasted uh, a little longer than we expected. I was supposed to be turned on in early December, as you might remember. That's why we didn't have an update for a while. People were like, hey, what's happening? Didn't you get turned on? I was like, nope. Didn't get turned on until January 2nd uh, because uh, the honeymoon lasted uh, about 10 weeks uh, about two weeks longer than expected. But once it was over, it was over, and I was ready for the turn on. And for those who may not know, honeymoon period is the period that happens after the surgery. The device is in there, but it hasn't been activated yet. And then just the presence of it, and then usually some inflammation going on in the brain and the process that your body is doing and your brain is doing to acclimate to having this device in there, you usually have, people with Parkinson's usually have relief from symptoms to some degree. You had a decent amount of relief from symptoms for several weeks past what you would normally do. (laughs) They did a good job with the placement. (laughs) Uh, All things considered, though, I'm really excited about how DBS has changed some symptoms and improved my quality of life. Before the surgery, I would take my walking poles everywhere and use them frequently. I traveled to Toronto this week by myself and didn't even pack them. And I didn't miss them. Uh, So for certain, my walk is a lot better than it was. For sure. And um, your energy for walking. So it takes less effort. So your energy for it. Because sometimes the poles were helpful simply because you were getting tired. It's the end of a long travel day. We have to walk to that next gate. And you just really needed the polls to help you along, and you didn't, which was great. Yeah. I was talking to my mom on the phone. She was, your old voice is back. 
<laughs> uh, and I do have more confidence with it, uh, knowing that was important to me. The DBS clinic paid extra attention to it when uh, tweaking and changing and making sure that my voice was where it should be. Uh, my small dyskinesia is a little rocking with a twitch in my foot. The team is working to eliminate every last one of them. And I feel bad because like I don't really notice them, and then I'll notice it. I'm like, oh, that's no big deal. But then like, you got to tell us because we can't get rid of them if you can't tell us. And I'm like, but it's just a thing. And they're like, yeah, you're not supposed to have that. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh. Oh, that'd be nice. We can address that. You know, everybody doesn't have a twitchy foot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I still need a daily nap. Uh, I still have trouble going to sleep and acting out my dreams. But on the whole, I feel less and less like a person with Parkinson's and more and more like a person who happens to have Parkinson's. It has improved your sleep a bit, though. Oh, I get many more hours sleep per night. Because you're less restless. Right. Yeah. And that's been nice. And especially early on, right after the surgery, I was getting... A ton of sleep because it's just the, the trauma of the surgery, and now it's continuing on. I'm I'm still getting six six hours of sleep a night, which you know two years ago I was getting three. So you know it's amazing. What I've noticed most is just the evenness of your day because you're not doing the on and off period with each dose of your medication there's that your symptoms and your quality of life and your energy level and whatnot seem to be a lot more balanced and less up and down throughout the day. Do you sense that as well? I do. Um, it, It is nice not to have the ups and downs and the sweats and the, you know, the body temperature control issues and the dyskinesias, like those things are gone. It's, it's just, I take a pill and then two hours later I take another pill and that's, I'm taking half the amount of medication I, I used to take and we're only, you know, technically two and a half weeks into programming. Yeah. You still have some calibration to some tweaking to, to refine it and also to continue to decrease your medication. Right. They want to get you to the lowest amount of medication where your symptoms are also managed and your quality of life is improved. And then they can work up from there as the Parkinson's progresses. Yes, for sure. I told my counselor today, as I look back on the surgery, it wasn't as big of a deal as I thought it was going to be. Well, you say brain surgery. And it's like, whoa, brain surgery. Well, when you say brain surgery, you think big deal. Cracking open your, open your skull and poking around in your brain. And we're all quite protective of our brains. They're delicate things. And so it feels a lot more dramatic and invasive than it actually was. No, people are still going, how's Larry's recovery? It's like, Larry was recovered like the day after the surgery. Larry's doing great. So it feels a lot more dramatic and invasive than it actually was. They do a good job yes. of it, of recovery being quite mild. And by, I mean, you walked out of the hospital. The next day. Your uh, roommate 
was like, you had what kind of surgery? <laughs> in surgery? And you were like, yeah, you were up and talking and raring to go and felt really good and walked walked out the door. And you've been doing great since then. And people seem quite concerned with your recovery and ask about it all the time, which of course you are because you had brain surgery, but you've been doing quite well and your quality of life is improved. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. No No question. question. Uh, But but it is a huge decision for each individual. Everybody's different. Uh, and if you're considering it, I do recommend Dr. John Stanford's new book, DBS Diary, which he's publishing this week. The book features the DBS d- dilemma from multiple points of view, including Tim Haig and Sonia Mather and Matt Eagles, myself, and many others. As I'm left with my scars to heal and my hair to grow back, my hair's not growing back, honey. So the humps on my head, like they're just little, little bumps, but they feel like big bumps. Because the hair is growing around them <laughs> and not back over them. Yeah, yeah well, because they, they, they where they drilled was right where your widow's peaks were naturally coming in. So I think it might have just kind of killed off the what was left of those hair follicles in there. So now you have a bit of a bigger, bigger widow's peak in a, in a couple of spots there. Guess we're gonna have to get some Rogaine. No. <laughs> I think it looks great. I think it looks fine. Okay. It does look different. Yeah. But your hair's going to grow back. Right after it's shaved, it's usually a little bit more fine. So it'll grow back thicker. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I kept wondering afterwards, how exactly does this thing work? And so I, uh, I hunted down one of the men behind the DBS device itself, uh, the software. Like, what, the, what are they dialing in? What are they... They, they talk about getting the beta and adjusting the beta. and Like, what, what is going on here? Uh, and so I found Brian Pepin. He's the CEO and founder of Rune Labs. Uh, and he was inspired to focus on brain issues after watching his grandparents struggle with Alzheimer's when he was in high school. So, honey, in the first appointment where they turned the device on, right. Nurse Nancy took several hours to... Turn it on, test different electrodes, turn them up to a certain degree, and maybe describe for people what it was like as they were using this interface uh, described in your in the interview, and um, it was simply on a tablet, and I was able to kind of look over her shoulder and watch her turn certain electrodes up so that their energy sphere was bigger and affecting your brain a little bit more. She's doing all of that on this little interface (laughs) that is being discussed, right? And it literally just looks like a game on a tablet. Yeah, it's really wild. And it's interfacing with a, with a little white, it almost looks like a mouse. And and then that connects to, to the, the, the battery, which has all the software Uh, buried in my chest. This interface that you're going to hear more about during the interview is software that is controlled on a tablet. So in your first appointment where they turned it on and were testing the various electrodes and whatnot, she literally was just pushing up a button and turning up this electrode a little bit so that its sphere of energy would get bigger and would affect your brain more so that she could find a sweet spot for where it's helping you 
Right. How's and what's the highest point you could go to where you didn't have other side effects that you don't want? Like what were some of them that you experienced when oh, yeah. she would get a little too high? Oh yeah. So I had triple vision, I had double vision, I had my feet felt like they were like cemented into the ground. I mean, it was she's like, Tell me when you feel something. I'm like, just feel so oh right there, I feel it. Whoa. <laughs> Nurse Nancy was great, though. Just to give an introduction to folks where this is the kind of technology that they're using um, with the DBS technology. And then we're going to hear more about that during the interview. Brian Pepin, he's the CEO and founder of Rune Labs. He was part of Google's Verily program and Elon Musk's Neuralink. And while those were insightful places to be, Brian was looking to make a difference today, not in 10 years. And Rune Labs is his answer. Rune supplies the technological interface, what we were just talking about, for Medtronics, that's the device I have, DBS system. Here's part of our conversation. I am very happy to be here, Larry. If and when some new technology like Neuralink comes along, um, I, I hope that we'll be able to, to leverage it you know, for treatment of a variety of conditions. But Right, I mean, right now, there's plenty of stuff that's out there that's not getting used and not getting used effectively. And there's stuff that's in the near-term pipeline. And there's a lot of good we can do today. So, you know, why why wait? Well, so, yeah, exactly. Why wait? I am having DBS surgery. And yeah. I'm oh. getting the Medtronic pre, pre, uh, percept that you are certainly right. uh, responsible for. So tell me, what is it and what should I expect from it? Deep brain simulation is a is a therapy that um, has been around for a little while. Um, I think it was, it was first approved in the late '90s, um, kind of early 2000s, started to get rolled out. Um, it's actually a therapy that sort of evolved from this historical therapy where um, they would just take out a part of the brain, so lesion, like a lobotomy, basically, yeah, a, a very uh, a deep brain lobotomy, right? <laughs> Uh, and I think the observation was, okay, well, we have this technology, um, for, you know, pacemakers and what if we do that instead and do like a temporary lesion and sort of by, you know, some form of just kind of experimentation and iteration and just kind of luck, it actually turns out that, uh, you, you have a, by, by leveraging deep brain stimulation and leveraging stimulation in this area, you can do a lot more than just temporarily lesion the brain. And we've learned a lot about that over the last 20 years. One of the, the big evolutions over the last 20 years is uh, has been driven by Medtronic, and that's been putting um, uh, hardware into the device that makes it uh, capable of sensing the brain signals that are that are coming out of that area. So sensing the electronic kind of electrophysiology, the, the sort of EEG type forms that are generated. And that has provided a window into sort of mechanism and understanding of what DBS is doing and is, I think, allowing further optimization. And it also... Uh, holds out the promise that by actually using those signals to kind of modulate what's going on with the therapy, you can have a, a therapy which is, for example, responsive to um, somebody who has normal motor fluctuations uh, with their levodopa doses. And it can sort of even out automatically for you the stimulation so that you, you know, have a sort of minimum dyskinetic time and minimum off time, right? As I say, doing yeah. that for you in the background. And that um, is a trial that is just sort of finishing up. There was some preliminary data that was actually published recently at the big movement of sort of study conference in Copenhagen that I think folks are pretty excited about. So we'll see a lot more news on that, uh, next year, but is it, it's, it's, uh, we work with a lot of these patients who have, um, have these implants and we're, we're working, uh, to see how we can especially make that new technology, that brain sensing technology really useful for folks to help them 
get all those optimal program settings really fast. And so, you know, you go to all this effort to get DBS, you want it to work for you as quickly as possible, right? And and also to help it make sure that as your disease changes, that therapy is sort of naturally evolving and that you're always sort of feeling like you're getting maximum benefit. You're chasing the, the disease as it progresses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so so within the, you know, my brain and the wires yeah. and the battery and stuff, where what's your, what's Rune Lab's role in all that? So we're basically here to interpret the data and help patients and clinicians make better decisions and predictions about um, how to, uh, once once they have the therapy, how to kind of control it and how to set it and how to parameterize it, how to make it work with, you know, medications. Uh, We're also doing some work to help help folks, especially folks who don't or don't have access to a movement disorder specialist help them understand that they they do in fact have a bunch of uncontrolled symptoms that might benefit from some form of advanced therapy including dbs and then help them get kind of connected to that therapy um specifically we're we're running this nice um kind of registry right now with medtronic uh for folks who get that implant uh, where we're looking at um that that first couple months from programming and looking at how we can bring um, some of our own data to the table, as well as some of the data that's generated from Medtronic's device to, uh, you know, kind of automate some aspects of that programming process. And and again, really make sure that you're coming out of those first couple programming visits, you know, optimized and really confident that that therapy is working for you uh, and that you've been, you're really getting like the full benefits that you might be able to capture from, from undergoing that procedure. So, so as you've seen the evolution of DBS, even over the last five years, yeah. what, what, what excites you? Um, I, well, I think that the sensing certainly excites me a lot because um, it is a new actionable data source that, you know, is certainly interesting in the context of making DBS therapies better. But, you know, we're seeing a lot of insight into how that what that data can tell us about if somebody's on too much or too little levodopa or maybe somebody should be on, you know, amantadine or one of these other drugs. So it's just a new, very actionable, predictive data source that is really closely tied to mechanism. And that's just so exciting to have from the perspective of being able to further the science and further the clinical predictions. Um, I guess on the other side of the spectrum, I'm I'm also excited that um, Medtronic and Abbott and others are, are kind of leaning into the ability to do more with DBS remotely. Yeah. Uh, so that folks don't have to especially folks in rural areas don't have to drive or fly or whatever to go see a well-trained movement disorder specialist and they can get some of these like, you know, tune-ups or optimizations done um, in a way that's like lower friction on, on everybody. It's tough to drive anywhere when you have Parkinson's and then to drive six hours to, or, or fly somewhere. To, right. Yeah. You just up. end up, yeah. You end up canceling visits and then, yeah. yeah like I said, nobody's really, you're not benefiting as much and the healthcare system's not benefiting as much. So it's, it's not good. Uh, Where do you see the technology evolving to? Uh, well, I think, I guess, I mean, it's just at this conference, people are definitely excited about the perspective of these therapies, leveraging some of the sensing data, being able to sort of adapt and control themselves. Um, and what that'll mean for- Is there an ethical line there? Like. Do we, do we feel like there's we're we're letting automation take over? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's almost ethical not to do it as long as it's providing safe clinical benefit for folks, right? Like, okay. it's, uh, I think you know, there these systems are complex, but they're not complex to the level of 
you know, even what's going on in your iPhone, <laughs> not even close. Right. right? So there, there's a, a limited set of, of, you know, well-controlled, well-studied algorithms, which um, can be used and cycled through and they have like thresholds and safety thresholds and things like that. I think a few folks who have been in that trial have described it. So they, they've had experience with sort of normal continuous brain stimulation and then experience with this adaptive side. And they described it as a difference between like driving a manual stick shift somewhat poorly and then being in a automatic like oh, brand new transmission. And it's just kind of shifting with you as you go through the day versus always kind of like being in the wrong gear. Right. Okay. How does the eager interaction with uh, Parkinson's patients help your development of, of new technologies? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's central. And I think, you know, we, we were talking about reasons of like why Parkinson's for precision medicine. And I would say one of the major reasons is the patients are, um, you know, really fantastic to work with. They're we are. We are great. You are. Uh, so, you know, why? So you're, 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 um, there's not, in, in, until you get much later on in the disease, there's not a lot of cognitive deficits. Parkinson's patients are on average, they're, they're sort of more engaged in their care or they have caretakers who are. There's um, great patient organizations at the local level, at the regional level, at the national level um, that also folks are very engaged with. So, it's a, it's a group of folks who have been very receptive to the idea of, of seeing some more of the data and seeing some of these predictions and making use of it and who have been willing to, you know, kind of take some of that data to their clinicians and force some of these conversations um, who, you know, are open to wearing an Apple watch and, and seeing some of that come back to them. Um, so, yeah, I think our, our primary stakeholder, and we hammer this in all the time, is the patient. And we put a lot of focus into the patient experience and what people are seeing, what people can do on their own. Uh, and then also kind of branch out from there. So what patients can do with their clinicians, what patients can do by enrolling in the clinical trial, uh, what we can do in partnership with patients to further research around endpoints and, you know, understanding how diseases can get modified and things like that. But what role does innovation play at Room Labs? Um, well, I think the we have not solved Parkinson's, right? Parkinson's is an unsolved problem. So to, to move forward, we always have to innovate. We have a we have a core science team that involves some neuroscientists um, and also some like AI scientists that is sort of constantly looking for the data and look, looking through the data and looking for opportunities to do something really interesting. So like one of the areas that we're really excited about is... Uh, has built on our ability to monitor like dyskinesia and tremor and keep Parkinson's symptoms. And actually, uh, we now have a model that can predict those symptoms for patients an hour in advance. So we're we're now leveraging that algorithm into a, a sort of a product feature that will provide an alert to patients if they're going to be trending sort of severely dyskinetic or severely like tremoring, and we're going to be adding other symptoms. Um, which we're super excited about and we'll be kind of running a more a larger study and taking that all the way through FDA clearance. But uh, that that's the kind of thing that we get excited about because it really changes what's possible um, for folks at home in terms of their, their care. Like, you know, do I take an extra quarter pill in this dose? Do I delay this dose? Do I have this high protein meal? Like, do I get in a car now and drive somewhere? Like, so we're hoping to make 
all of that much more, you know, you're going off your gut feeling or your kind of your feelings. So we're hoping to just provide that little bit of extra boost. And I think, yeah, it's an area where we can take a lot of inspiration from like the continuous glucose monitoring diabetes community. So we kind of understand how some of these things might be used in practice. But of course, there's a lot to learn for how to deploy it in, in Parkinson's specifically. Tell me about Strive PD. Yeah. So, so Strive PD is our sort of patient and clinician facing brand and product. Um, it's, you know, it's a software product and a data product that has a, a mostly a patient facing component. So an iOS app and the Apple watch integration, everything there, but it also has, um, a clinician facing component in terms of our ability to generate these sort of curated reports that both the patient and clinician see, and also a portal where clinicians can do like a little bit deeper dive clinically into data that if they want to, um, and where it's appropriate, uh, we have, you know, as part of that, we have pipes into, data streams from EHRs, Medtronic, like all, all again, like, the, you know, the patient has to go through and say, okay, you can have access to this and this and bring this into my care, right? So we do that. Uh, but yeah, the net effect of that is you um, get to see in your app, your own kind of patterns and symptoms, right? And then hopefully, ultimately, some of this forecasting that happens. Uh, and then you can use that to, you know, look at how different, maybe exercises are affecting your symptoms or, you know, did that, did that dose, did that dose change I just had with my clinician, did that really affect my tremor? And maybe did it just affect it in the evening or not? And then we also, I curate these reports for you and your clinician in such a way that um, it can drive really focused conversations in the clinic around specific symptoms at specific times relative to specific medications or specific doses. And really, you know, dial in that like evening levodopa dose, or maybe provide the rationale to, you know, switch from a, a conventional levodopa to an extended release formulation, or maybe provide the rationale for maybe thinking about a pump or, or a, a DBS if you're having like severe motor fluctuations and really presenting that in a clear way. I want to dive a little bit deeper into biomarkers and yeah. what you what Rune Labs is doing to help find those key biomarkers that we need to ultimately uh, you know figure out what the heck is going on with Parkinson's and how to stop it. Yeah. So the sort of, you know, holy grail, if you will, right now in Parkinson's is quote unquote modifying the disease, right? You know, I, I think being a little bit more humble than that, I think people do realize now that Parkinson's is not probably one monolithic disease. Um, and you have to kind of accept that and integrate that into your understanding, okay, what are we measuring? So I kind of mentioned this earlier, but when we partner with, you know, a stem cell therapy company to try and figure out how they're going to measure progression in the stem cell therapy cohort versus the non stem cell therapy cohort, I think it's pretty likely that those folks are going to want to measure something that's maybe slightly different or maybe very different than folks who want to measure disease progression in an early stage cohort where they're targeting the mitochondrial pathway, right? Because right. they, they may be just targeting different aspects of the disease. Um, or different diseases entirely in some cases. So uh, I think we, we take that into account. And then, um, like I said, we, we leverage our ability to look for, you know, data streams that you can really only collect longitudinally at home and you can't really just necessarily observe in the clinic exploring. The other thing that gets a lot of attention right now, and I think is going to get an increasing amount of attention, is a more granular look at what's happening with Parkinson's specific sleep disturbances and how those evolve early on. 
in a dynamic way um, and, and how those also how those respond to various therapies and folks and using that to kind of segment people out into different maybe trajectories or different disease subtypes. Have you uh, considered uh, measuring gait? Yeah, so we we that gates gates part of the mix, I would say, in terms of how we look at like symptom rolling on and off. Um, one of the things that we just actually um, put some publications out on at the most recent Movement Disorder Society conference is looking. There's a there's a, a group of folks uh, who um, have shared their health kit data with us going back several years, uh, and what we see is um, these sort of different slopes of how the gate slows down. And people who are sort of seeing movement disorder specialists and have access to advanced therapies versus folks who are seeing a general neurologist and don't. And you see, unfortunately, the folks who are do not, you know, are, are having a lot of uncontrolled symptoms, but not being, you know, on advanced therapies. You see them kind of get worse more quickly, get slower more quickly, lose balance more quickly versus folks, for example, who um, are maybe going on to an extended release drug or going on DBS. And you can see, you know, and you can even see when folks go into DBS, those slopes change. So maybe they're getting worse and then, you know, right. they, they sort of, so that I think is really interesting to see. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case, but we we do see differences in slopes and kind of gait progression and balance progression in different cohorts of people. Well, I think it's interesting that you're, you're going at it that way when so many other people are going through the biology of it. And so I think that that's really cool to have, be, be attacking it from all these angles. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you want to connect the two, right? Like, that's, right. that's the dream. Yeah. That was Larry with Rune Labs CEO and President Brian Pepin. Now, understand, he, he, he did the software for Medtronics. There's people like this that do, do it for the other uh, companies that, that make DBS systems, too, Boston Scientific and Abbott. Uh, and so those are basically the three places you can get DBS. And and a lot of times the batteries are mix and match. Like you may get a Medtronic device initially, but when they change your battery, they may give you a, an Abbott battery or Boston Scientific battery. And then that changes the whole interface because the, the technology is in the battery, not in the What I find leads. hopeful about that, though, is that the reason they're doing that is because this battery works a little bit better, and so we're going to give you the best technology available because they're constant now. There are constant innovations. People are paying attention to it. People want to advance this and make the quality of life of people with Parkinson's and everyone around them better through these devices, and they're doing it. And I think one of the important things to keep in mind is, and this is ultimately why I decided to have it, DPS gets you to your best possible state when you're on medication through, you know, but instead of having it go up and down, it's 24 hours a day. But if you wait so long that your best on is still off, there's no benefit to having DBS. So you want to have it early enough that it has a marked difference in your lifestyle. And that you can recover from it decently. So I think what that does, honey, is that wraps up our 28-part series on DBS. <laughs> <laughs> so this wraps up our DBS story for now. We'll continue to calibrate and refine, and that will be an ongoing process for the rest of your life, as long as you have the device in your head. But for now, you're doing great. 
We're grateful for the DBS. We're glad we did all this work and we're glad that we shared this story with you. The Life Gives You Parkinson's is a Curious Cast production. Brought to you in part by PD Avengers. Now is the time to make your spark art. Go to sparkthenight.org for details. Two winners will get their art on official Parkinson's Day gear. We'd truly appreciate it if you could share this podcast with someone who's affected by Parkinson's. And you can always rate and follow as well. Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow our audience and raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.